0: money hand over fist in an economy that isn't working for most people that's what populism is picking up on and now the good fight with Yasha Monk
1: welcome to the podcast that searches for the ideas policies and strategies that can beat a authoritarian populist like Donald Trump over the next four years and the next 40. John F. Kennedy didn't mention the word responsibility in his inaugural speech on a cold, freezing winter night in D.C. in January of 1961, when he asked his citizens that they should ask not what the country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. But th- that's what he meant. In the post-war era, politicians had this really expansive notion of responsibility. before thought that it involved duties that each of us has to our family, to our neighbors, to our community, to our state, even to our country. Now, in my PhD dissertation, which was just published as a book called The Age of Responsibility, Luck, Choice, and Welfare State*, a couple of months ago, I show to what degree our understanding of responsibility has narrowed since then. But when we talk about responsibility, especially in the context of politics, what we now mean is basically you've got to earn enough of a living so you're not a nuisance to other people. All that responsibility means is a narrow concept of personal responsibility. And in keeping with that, we've reshaped the welfare state to say, look, if you've made a mistake, if you're poor because of some bad choice you've made, then we don't really owe you anything. Only if you've made a, uh, if you're need because of reasons beyond your control, because you were in a car accident or you were born disabled, uh, can you legitimately claim a right for the public to come to your assistance. And I think that there's something wrong with that. That actually the way in which responsibility matters to us in our lives is that we voluntarily take on responsibility for our families, that we want to raise kids, we want to look after our parents, that we care about social issues, that we pursue artistic or even political projects in our own lives. And I think that we need to start thinking about those things again in our politics, both in order to have a more just set of social entitlements, but also so that we can really think of each other as equal citizens. Because the starting point to thinking of each other as equal citizens is to recognize that each of us want to take on responsibility, that each of us want to be responsible citizens, rather than assuming that other citizens are only ever trying to shirk their duty. It's a special pleasure to have Mark Bly on the podcast today. Mark is the Eastman Professor of Political Economy at Brown and the author of books like Austerity, The History of a Dangerous Idea. Uh, We talked about everything from the economic drivers of uh, Trump's rise, the way that Europe can get out of the euro crisis, but most importantly, how to create a politics in which the actual deep economic problems of this moment are addressed in an honest way and point towards a better future. As you'll see, Mark is... Just an incredibly smart, wide ranging energetic thinker. It's a real challenge to keep up with him. But it's one of the most fun conversations I've had on the podcast, and I hope you'll enjoy it. Mark, welcome to the podcast. A lot of people have concluded in the last months that the election of Donald Trump and the rise of populism is really about identity and race rather than about the economy. And there's a bunch of political scientists who look at um, you know, vote patterns and say... How rich somebody is is not a good predictor for whether or not they voted for Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton, uh, Where sort of a racial animus, various racial attitudes are a really good predictor about whether or not they voted for Trump. Um, I, I have a hunch that you disagree with that slightly. So, so so tell me why that's the wrong way to think about it, why actually the, the main story that we should be thinking about here is the economy.
0: Well, let, let's start with what was you just said there. What you did is what they do, which is to reduce the economy down to a single variable called income. So It's not about lived experience. It's not about living with low wages for a very long period of time. It's not about watching through social media as coastal cities bloom while rents go through the roof and nothing changes in your neck of the woods, apart from the fact that more people are on opiates. So the economy itself becomes one thing, your, your level of income, and, and guess what? Rich people vote Republican, and, and, and Donald was a Republican candidate. So I, I don't even know what people are trying to say when they do that. When you want to talk about the economy, let's go back and take an example from your friend and mine, Carl Polanyi. who's a historian from the 1940s. And he wrote this book called The Great Transformation, and in it, he basically explains with a very simple sort of metaphorical contraption called the double movement, why it is or how it was that the world produced the great catastrophe of the 20s, 30s, and 40s. And what he reminds us is that this one set of economic events, that being the destruction of middle class savings during World War One, prior to that, the strictures of the gold standard and being unable to adjust except through wages and prices. After that, the great deflation following the inflation of the 1920s. These very common shocks to these essentially similar economies in Europe produced incredibly different cultural reactions. In some places, very few places, it was social democracy. In most places, it was fascism. In some places, it was a fight to the death between fascism and communism. In some places, it was really Stalinism. So the economy produces multiple effects. The idea that you can reduce this to the level of income at a given point in time and that versus some other individual variable predicts a phenomenon like Trump, I think is absolutely the wrong way of looking at it.
1: So, you know, there's a reason why I set you up with this question because I agree with that completely. But there's sort of two different ways of thinking through that, right? Like, one is that our model of a social world was too simplistic here, that we were wrong to think it's just about income levels and we need to have a more subtle theory of a case, and then we're going to find uh, those right correlations. So that once you go away from absolute income levels and you look at, you know, how the economy do- is doing in your zip code, or whether or mm-hmm. not uh, you know you are optimistic about the economic future, or whether or not you are in the kind of job that actually faces challenges in the future, and then we can go and measure it, and it's, and, and 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 actually the economy is going to become a really good predictor of how you're going to vote. And the second sort of way of thinking about it is to say that even that is too simple-minded, that really there's been a transformation from an economy in which living standards just doubles from one generation to the next, and people know that as a social factor about the whole society, and now living standards have essentially stagnated, and that just breeds all of this anger, and you're not going to see any patterns within the vote support of a country at all but even so, it's still the economy that's driving it. Which of those two things do you think it is? It's just that we've been looking at two simplistic variables, or is there something about how the economy is doing, what sort of pervades the spirit of the age? So there aren't any variables for us to find and sort of prove this, and yet it's an economic
0: story. No, I, I, again, I would think neither. So the way that I look at it, and as I just published a piece on this, if anybody wants to look it up in the Review of International Political Economy, uh, it very simply goes like this, that doubling of li- living standards period you were talking about, the you know, the Trent as the French call it, I love the Italian term for even more, il boom," which was from the 40s through the 60s, where you had not just a doubling of national income, you had in Europe a trebling of national income in some places. It was, as Thomas Beckeri reminds us, historically unprecedented, and it was based upon a unique configuration, which was basically a social configuration where capital was very much on the back foot. Because of the existence of the Soviet Union, because of the Cold War, because of the need to not go back to the gold standard and force the adjustment costs all onto labor again, the world changed. It changed with labor parties. It changed with protective institutions. It changed with the rise of welfare states, redistributionary taxation, national economies, finance, and a very restrictive regulatory box, etc. And under those conditions, labor and capital grew together because the only way capital could maintain its profit share was by innovating, which is why you got a lot of innovation and a lot of uh, productivity gains. Beginning in 73, that changes. Uh, compensation continues to basically go, uh, rather productivity continues to climb a pace, but compensation to labor and labor share begins to change. And the inflationary crisis of the 1970s makes this worse for capital because essentially they're not getting the real rate of return because of inflation. And we know the result. The result was the Reagan and Thatcher revolutions, if you will, a kind of software reset of the system of capitalism. So out with the old, in with the new. We went from a national economy to internationalized and globalized economies. We went from protected labour markets to flexible labour markets. We went from the treasury running the show to the central bank running the show. And most importantly, will it finance out of its post-New Deal box? Now, when you do this, when you have wage stagnation in a country that is used to high levels of growth and that wage stagnation persists at the same time as you open up finance, and finance gets to do its thing in a world in which the real rate of interest in 1981 is 15%, then it's impossible for the system, for finance, not to generate huge returns, which is the rise of the Wall Streets and so on and so forth. But it's also the loans that have been made by the system. Where are they going? They're going into the pockets and the credit cards and the houses and everything else of US consumers. And 60% of them over the next 30-year period don't really get a real wage increase. So right across the board, you have people that are taking on debt. And the idea is the wages will always be higher, so they'll be able to pay it off. But in fact, that never happened. So they got caught long and wrong with debt. In a world in which interest rates have collapsed, there's no inflation, there's no wage growth. You can't get wage growth because if you ask for a pay rise, somebody will move your job to Thailand. And essentially, you're kind of screwed. If you put all this together, you get a world in which 60% of the people in the OECD countries uh, are, or at least should be, extremely dissatisfied by the fact that 10% of the populations in each of these countries have made off with close to 90% of the returns. Now, if you're going to think about If you're going to think about Le Pen, if you're going to think about everything else, I mean, this is global. This isn't about the peculiarities of American racial politics. This is a much bigger canvas. And there are real variables you can use to track this, which is if there's no inflation and you can't get a pay rise, then you're stuffed with a huge debt load. And the world keeps asking you to take on more debt and have more student loans and stand up and stop whining, you millennials, and just save up like everyone else, even when the game is totally rigged. And then along comes someone like Trump and says, hey, the game's rigged. Meanwhile, our candidates are like, hey, yeah, um, everything's great. Let's defend the legacy.
1: So. That was an amazing tour de force of of, of 50 years of financial history. Uh, let me sort of try and tease some of the things that you were saying out and, and, and get at it through a sort of simple question, which is that there is one pessimistic story which is just about the ability of the economy to keep producing the kind of growth that it has over the last 50 years. So when you look at 3,000 years of human economic history, for 2,700 years, there's essentially no economic growth, 0.1% per year or something like that in good times. And then there's these 200, 250 years in which you have very, very rapid economic growth. And it would be tempting to think that that is actually for sort of you know reasons that can't always be repeated. So you're moving, you know, in 1900, I think only about 10% of the American population graduated from high school. Right. So you're moving from a world of just wasted human resources Mm -hmm. to one where everybody who is talented can at least finish high school and hopefully have access to college. Um, You're moving from a world where there's, you know, vast mortality to one in which, you know, most people live until old age. Right. So there's all of those once a pop transformations, there's all of those easy technological low hanging fruit. I mean, you develop electricity and all of those kinds of things. And so there's, there's one way of thinking about it, this. is like, well, perhaps we've just come to the limit of this. And we're not going to have the same overall economic growth. And so um, at that point, it'll just get more and more difficult to distribute the shrinking uh, economic gains. The rich are going to have more and more of an incentive in monopolizing all of those gains. And this is sort of a result of a of politics you get. Now, it seems to me that the story you've been telling is actually much more contingent. The way you do seem to be mm-hmm. talking about it is a set of political choices around the level of inflation we should have, around the politics of debt, around the politics of government spending. Uh, and so, in a way, it becomes a more hopeful story, because if we get that story right, then we might go back to really improving people's living standards, and we're not going to be pissed off, we're not going to be in the debt trap that they find themselves in now, uh, and so things are going to go back to, to normal. So, so which you know is there a little bit of in each of those stories, or would you really say it's a question of contingent political choices, and and actually perhaps that's a liberating story because it means that if we take the right choices going forward, we
0: can do a lot better. I'm, I actually I'm quite fundamentally hopeful. But so so let me try and parse the multiple things there that you you brought in. There's never any mean regression. What's the name of the Greek dude who said you can't stand in the river, same river twice? Um, um, uh, is it. Uh, what, yeah. Whatever. Some old smart Greek yeah. dude, right? So basically, you can't stand in the same river twice, and we can't. So, you know, are we going to go back to the way it was? Well, no. I mean, if you look at it on a very long run set of, you know, a, a long run timetable, the, the real raw, long run rate of interest for the globe is about one5 to 2%. Uh, inflation, which we generalize from the unique experience of the 1970s and the collapse of that full employment regime, the 40s through the 70s, as being always and everywhere a present danger, doesn't seem to be anywhere much just now, due to the fact that despite the fact, I should say, that central banks have been chucking trillions into the global money supply. So the world is always changing, and it's changing in such a way that uh, we can't go back. So let's just establish this one. Now, in terms of the pessimistic story, we could go this way. Um, Old people suck. And here's what I mean by this. And Germany, of course, is one of the great classic cases for this, Um, or Europe as a whole. Why is Europe trapped in low growth? In part because they're all really old. Your average European is about 44 years old. Um, It's a rich place. And particularly if you're an export-driven country like Germany, you've got this huge surplus, which you can't intermediate at home. So you end up investing that abroad, usually in dodgy things like Greek debt. And the rate of return to assets in your own home economy, because everyone's over-saving and they're already rich and they're at a different point in the consumption life cycle, means that growth is endemically slow. Corporates are net savers. American corporations sitting on giant cash piles doing stock buybacks, not investing. Uh, German corporations, huge net savers. German government, huge net savers. Uh, Basically, the only people spending any money are Anglos who are cash strapped and credit crunched on credit cards. Everybody else is oversaving and we've got old people. Well, that's amenable to policy. Let's go somewhere else in the world. China's not crawling along at 1%, is it? China's actually installed in the past five years as much solar capacity as the entire United States, and it will continue to do so. They get stuff done. Uh, They're introducing a national pension scheme on top of the National Health Service that they're building, all of which will reduce saving in their economy and make them more reliant upon domestic consumption, thus weaning them off of extra... But you could say, so from my perspective,
1: it seems like you could also say that the story of China is precisely the story of not having reach for technologies frontier not having reach for frontier of using all of your human resources right i mean china is a country where there's still
0: oh that's certainly part of the story now but i mean most chinese growth comes from i mean have a look there's a lovely book called the rise of the red queen danny bresnitz from a few years ago i mean people say china doesn't innovate it's just cheap labor well that gets part of the story right but it misses the fact that they've reinvented global logistics the supply chaining coming out of that economy basically makes the entire world work in some way. So, you know, we're, we're entering a sort of a, a world in which you've got global dynamics and we're trapped thinking in sort of national economies. And we're just, we're just not very good at picking up but, that but let me so,
1: so instead of getting down the sort of rabbit hole of, of figuring out China, l- let me go back because you were saying a moment ago that there's some policy fixes to the oversaving, right? So spell out for people who may not be... Uh, you know, as economically versed as you are, what those would look like? If the problem is all of these people over over saving um, and this sort of driving this problematic global politics of debt, how is it that you get German, you know, 60 year olds to spend money?
0: Well, it's very hard to get them to spend money, although you can do it through taxes. It's just that we don't like to. That's called leadership. Um, You could, uh, for example, take the corporate side first. American corporations have never been more profitable, and labor has never been cheaper. You see this in the the relationship between wages and, and corporate profits. So we have these tech entrepreneurs sitting on the side all the time talking about how the world's going to be transformed by tech. And every time I go into the supermarket, I notice that every single piece of fruit has a price tag on it that's been put there by a human. That's how cheap labor is. So why would you even bother investing in this tech? Well, if you're not investing in this tech and you're making super profits, your productivity is gonna to grind to a halt, which is pretty much where we are. So if we were to incentivize corporates to not net saving instead to invest in productivity enhancement, if you were basically to get policies that would raise wages so that corporates would have to innovate more in order to maintain their profit share, there's loads of ways you could do this. It's just a huge lack of political imagination. So so so
1: so what would that look like? Does that mean a high minimum wage, because suddenly- That
0: could be one part of it, but it's just a triage option. A simpler one would be, okay, let's talk it from the corporate side. Would corporates like to be better social citizens? Would they like to go back to the bowling alone world of running bowling alleys and being integrated into communities and all the rest of it? Well, you know, corporate, corporate leaders are people too. But they know that the minute that they try and do anything like that, some activist investor from a hedge fund will be on their case because they've missed their quarterly targets, and the whole board will be fired. So everybody's incentive points in the same way is to do nothing long term, everything short term, boost the share price, and that's all that you care about. That creates a very dysfunctional world. And it's very easy to change. Get rid of some of your minority shareholder protections. Then you might see a different set of investments going on. So they're not doing it because it's optimizing capital, they're doing it because it's optimizing the protection of the insiders and the firm. So this is one interesting way of thinking about this, right? I mean, is the problem
1: capitalism or is the problem a set of government rules and regulations that actually deepen the distributional properties of capitalism, right? So, so, so what you're saying right now is that actually There's a set of minority shareholder protections um, that lead management to be captured in more short-termist strategies, and that if you repeal some of those, you would wind up with better growth and to some degree better distributional outcomes.
0: Yeah, that would be one part of it. I'm not saying that's going to be like 50% of the variance in growth explained by changing minority shareholder protections, but that could be one way of doing it. Um other ways of thinking about it, think about finance, right? So the, there used to be these big companies like Fidelity, and they were filled with literally people, usually men, who would invest your money so that your kid could go to college. And they are being absolutely creamed by all these passive investment vehicles, ETFs, index funds, all the rest of it. So basically, you've got a, a world in which that side of the business has been utterly transformed and has been killed by this side of the business as everybody buys these products. Well, that's not government regulation, but it is basically bearing down on the margins. Now, the only way that you can make money in that is if you adopt this tech. You adopt this tech, you employ less people, things become more concentrated. And essentially, you know, the capitalist process is great at rationalization through competition, but sometimes that can lead you into a very weird space. And that's where we find ourselves. So how do we get out of it?
1: Um, and and I, I, I get that the sort of minority shareholder protection is one idea, upping min- minimum wage is one idea. But if we think about, you know, the drivers of this political moment being these deep-
0: Well, I mean, of- very simple ones. Look, just go to the go to the website of the Tax Justice Network. I mean, it's pretty straightforward, right? The largest money laundering institutions in the world are the London property market and the, and the county of Delaware for, for, for reincorporations. I mean, we could shut those down in a heartbeat if we wanted to, but frankly, it's too profitable for the Brits, and it's too valuable for the Americans. We blame the Cayman Islands for money laundering. It's nothing in comparison to what places like Delaware and Nevada do through reincorporation. Read Jason Sharman's uh, new book. It's called something like the, the, the Despot's Handbook or something, basically a global guide to money laundering. Tax Justice Network, I think their figure is 20, $24, $27 trillion in untaxed assets. That is stuff that was generated somewhere that should have been taxed that never was. So it's not a question of taking back stuff that doesn't belong to you. This is theft, right? The $27 trillion out there. Right? Since 1980, right across the OECD, with the exception of the Scandinavians, all we've ever done is cut taxes. Corporations used to pay about 10% of the total tax bill. Now they pay about 2 to 3%. I mean, there's, it's not low-hanging fruit. This is the inability of a governing class to actually look at the world in the face and call it what it is. We tinker around with minimum wages and there's stuff like this right in front of our eyes and we refuse to do anything about it because we're completely incentivized not to do it. Why? Because the very place that you're sitting in is funded by private money from corporates. So let's actually go
1: into this and think about how you would do this, right? So um, let's start with individual taxation, right? Like, it, it seems to me that... One of the interesting features of the American tax system is that you are taxed based on citizenship and or residency rather than on where you spend 180 days a year. Right. So in most European countries, if you um, spend 180 days a year on the Cayman Islands, um, you don't have to pay any tax. Um, In the United States, that's not true. If you're a US citizen, you have to pay tax in the United States. Now, if you live in a place like france which is relatively high taxation you can basically deduct all of the tax you pay in france from what would be your american tax bill you don't end up paying anything extra but if you spend 180 days in the cayman islands you don't pay any tax in the cayman islands the state says okay fine you're not resident here it doesn't matter to me you have to pay at least what you would pay if you're resident here um is this something that could easily be emulated um, across Europe and so on? And would that make a difference?
0: Well, it would, but I mean, let's not put everything on income tax, right? I mean, if you do real effective tax rates, it's not clear that you get a good deal in the Anglo sphere. So, if you know nominally my tax rate, like everybody else, is about thirty-three uh, percent, then you take your deductions. then you add in your state and your local and social security, and suddenly you're looking at German levels of taxation, only you don't get German quality public goods. Britain's in an even worse state. You're 45% on your top marginal rate. So there's a limit to how far you can push. It's just on income tax. So I don't actually think that's a particularly compelling example. The real reason is, where's basically the corporate cash, and where's all the hidden cash? And there's hidden cash in another very interesting way. um, Have a look at... um, what's it called again, the, the book, The Submerged State. Um, there's fantastic stuff on tax expenditures. If you take the top 10, I believe it's 10, it might be 15 tax expenditures in the United States. So basically the write-off that you get for your mortgage if you've got a house, if you get rid of the um, uh, the uh, low tax rate for people who declare capital gains rather than income and work in finance. There's a whole bunch of them, right? So you run through basically top 10, top 15, you'd raise a trillion dollars a year in revenue hmm i mean it, it, there's nothing complex about this it's, you know we, but we we piss around on the margins it's sort of like well could we really ask people to pay more income tax i don't think that's tenable it's also kind of regressive fine i'm in agreement how about we just basically stop people like me getting a mortgage deduction? i have no need for this it's ridiculous and it gets bigger the bigger the property you have what what possible sense is this you're rewarding millionaires for buying expensive properties
1: so there's a much wider politics of housing prices here, right? I mean, one of the strangest things about our economy is that, um, you know, if if somebody ran for office saying, I'm, I promise I'm going to increase the price of bread and of pasta and of rice, people would look at that politician and say, what are you talking about? This is insane. But because our biggest consumption, good housing, is also the the place in which most people store a lot of their wealth it's become a systematic goal of policy especially in the united states but also in other countries to increase the cost of the main consumption good that we consume in our lives which is housing so so how do you change the politics around that i, I absolutely agree that the mortgage reduction is 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 is, 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 is an own goal and it's Um, incredibly regressive. But the problem is that the moment you get rid of that, it's mostly the richest people who pay, but there's a bunch of middle-class people who also see their housing prices slightly deteriorate as a result, and you'd have a huge rebellion on your hands. So how do you actually sell this larger vision of a political economy? But I think, you know, very compellingly, you're laying out here so that people can see themselves as potential winners in this, even if there's some short-term cost to be paid.
0: Well, I mean, let's think about it this way. It's a house. It's a thing you live in. The fact that we even use it as a language of consumption is pretty weird when you consider that uh, close to half of all people don't actually own a house, even in this environment, right? So, you know, just not think about a consumption for a minute. It's a place you live. Why should the place you live become the equivalent of an ATM? Because we've decided it's a good way for people to save for retirement because we don't want it on the public balance sheet anymore as a liability, so we put it onto them and we subsidize mortgage costs. All right. Then you restrict planning laws, you restrict building, you put up historical codes to protect districts, which basically just control supply. Price gets bid ever higher. And then you have rules like, if I sell my place tomorrow, um, I don't pay any taxes if it's my primary home. And that goes on for three years. So for three years i got this. So so imagine a world in which that didn't happen. Uh, you just paid taxes on it as ordinary income, and then uh, let's say that every um, three hundred thousand dollars you went up in price, you got less and less of a deduction until you got to five million dollar houses, in which case you get no deduction. And that would raise quite a lot. That would raise quite a lot of revenue and hit very few people. Uh, and it would hit them in such a way, it would encourage them to take their money and not just stick it in houses. They might actually have to stick it in other investments, which might be reasonably good for the economy, because there would be more flow, more liquidity, more risk-taking. Let's go to another topic
1: that uh, I know you have some strong feelings about. Actually, I'd love to find some topic sometime which you don't have strong feelings about. But Cheese! That... Try me on cheese. Couldn't care less. You're fine with gouda?
0: No, I hate them all. <laughs> oh, no, you see, that's you see, a strong, that's a strong feeling. Um, I told you, you, don't have,
1: you, there's nothing you don't have yeah, strong, strong feelings, feelings about. I, I admire that about you. Um, so, so you look at the European Union. Uh, what is, in ways that people are not too economically versed, what is the fundamental
0: problem with the euro and how
1: do we get out of it?
0: The fundamental problem with the euro is the fact that it's premised upon everybody giving away their printing press for their money because they can't be trusted with it. And the problem with doing that is it's really good to have your own printing press, particularly if you're running a levered capitalist system, i.e. one with lots of debt. Why is it lots of debt? Because debt's also called credit, and because wages aren't rising, as I've said already, you're living off of a lot of credit. So that needs to be paid back, or it becomes bad debt, and then your financial system blows up. If you have your own printing press, it's awesome. Because then what you can do is when your bank's get into trouble, you can just give them money. You can keep them liquid. If you can keep something liquid and the underlying assets aren't completely trash, then it stops them going insolvent. It's a great trick. Um, also, you can really run the printing presses and generate inflation. Sometimes you actually want to do that, particularly if you're caught in a world in which prices are falling through the floor. Uh, what else can you do? Well, you can choose not to do any of that in default, but that'll blow up your banking system. Or you can just run a permanently tight austerity budget. And that's what the eurozone has been forced to do because all of its big banks got in massive amounts of trouble. None of the governments could really effectively bail them. There was no European treasury for half the time until 2012 when the central bank was run by a guy called Trichet. It didn't even think it was proper to lend money to banks in any quantity, no matter how distressed they were. And the whole thing just went from bad to worse. Now, Draghi solved a lot of this by essentially turning the ECB into an actual central bank. And that's what he's been doing for the past several years and all power to him. But the problem is you can't solve fiscal problems with a monetary instrument, no matter how hard you try. And that's the problem that Draghi's faced. He's got monetary instruments. Why
1: why, why not? What does that
0: mean? Um, Because you can lower the price of money to zero and people who are heavily in debt won't borrow anymore. The number one problem facing the eurozone is not, as they call it, the monetary policy transmission mechanism, which basically means that it costs zero to borrow at the central bank, but 8% to borrow in Greece because Greece sucks, right? That's not the problem. Most people in Greece don't want to borrow anymore because the economy is knackered and they've got too much debt and things are shrinking rather than growing. So what do you need to do? You need to basically have the institutions that a real economy would have. An actual treasury, actual unified capital markets, a common banking system. And when you're in a populist... And, world, and, what, and what, I-
1: what, 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 in a case like Greece, what would those institutions do? If Greece had its own currency right now, how could Greece solve its problems in a way that, that it can't because it doesn't have control over those means?
0: Well, the first one is you can devalue. So essentially, you could take the hit through the exchange rate, makes exports more competitive, imports more expensive, and puts the cost of adjustment on the foreigners who are holding your debt. In extremists, you can let that devaluation go all the way down. You generate a lot of import inflation, which is a problem, but you can default on the people holding your debt. That's a nice way to get out of it. The Germans did that to the French in the 1920s. It was the hyperinflation. It was really about screwing the French over reparations. So having a currency is a very good weapon, uh, but also a very good tool of policy adjustment. And the eurozone countries simply don't have this. They have a central bank, but they have no other institutions which would help them get out of the mess that they dug themselves in.
1: Great. So now you, you have a country like Greece in, in deep debt. They don't have access to the kind of institutions and mechanisms they would need in order to solve this problem. What's the solution? Is it for the ECB to change what it's doing? Is it for more of those institutions to develop at the European level? Or is it to break up the euro, which would in itself create chaos? Is this a trap that the continent can get out of? And if so, how would it do
0: that? Yeah, I think it, I think it is a bit of a sort of like classical finger puzzle, that once you put your fingers either side, you can't get out. The Hotel California, I mean, pick, pick your metaphor, right? So would it be catastrophic if the eurozone broke up? Well, I mean, just imagine that Beppe Grillo, rather than Le Pen, comes along and says, let's have a referendum on the eurozone. The minute you do that, every Italian saver with euro-denominated assets wants to open a German bank account because you know that the very fact that he has said this means that people will begin to think that Italy might re-denominate. You don't want to be holding new lira. You want to be holding old euros. The capital flight flowing from Italy into Germany on that very announcement would overwhelm the German banking system, forcing them to put up capital controls, and that's the end of the euro. That's how potentially fragile this whole thing is. So... And presumably the consequences of that would be
1: disastrous. Or do you think that at this point that is the best option we have?
0: No, no, I don't think it's the best option. So let's think about what Macron's trying to do, right? So Macron comes along and and right out of the gate, he's got uh, some these people who are very versed in the Eurozone crisis, understand what's going on advising him. And he says, like, what we need is more Europe. Well, there's the political problem of building more Europe at a time when Europe is in Maladour, pretty much everywhere. But he's basically taking it to the Germans and saying, look, you know, we need euro bonds to reduce debt levels. We need debt forgiveness for places like Greece. The IMF is right. They'll never get going again with this debt overhang. We need real investment. Our investment has been falling for the past 15 years. We need to actually have a pro-growth agenda that's got teeth. And the Germans said, yeah, that's great, so long as it doesn't actually involve any treaty changes. So in other words, nine. Now, why is that? Because Northern Europe and Eastern Europe, centered around Germany, live off of exports to the rest of the world. They import demand from the rest of the world. Now, they're running a surplus against the rest of the world. It means somewhere in the eurozone, in this common currency area, somebody who's not doing that needs to be running a deficit. The problem is, as you know, they signed all these treaties in 2012 called the the six-pack and the fiscal compact that basically says nobody's allowed to run deficits. Now, the eurozone's been recovering because Draghi's turned a blind eye to this stuff. And the eurozone has had its own problems politically, so they've kept their heads down for a bit. And basically, everyone's running a deficit at this point in time. Now, the guys in Brussels are about to jump on planes in the next month or two and run to everyone and say, well, look at that deficit. It's terrible time for everyone to tighten, because that's what the rules say. But if you're asking Northern Europe to live high on the hog and do well with a huge export surplus. And nobody's allowed to allow a corresponding deficit. What you're basically saying is France and Italy and Spain need to run permanent austerity budgets so that Romania, Bulgaria, Germany, and Latvia can basically do well in the global economy. That's not going to end well. That's just populist fodder in waiting, right there.
1: I, I want to get your sense of some of the sort of supposed mega trends in the economy. And in particular, I think that there's two of them that I just don't quite understand how they are supposed to be working together or cross-cutting, right? So on the one side, there's this story that supposedly we're going to enter a period of secular stagnation in which over the next 100 years, productivity growth is going to be really slow, the economic growth of all is going to be really slow, um, and this will lead to stagnating living standards and so on, right? And then on the other side, there's this fear that we're going to get very rapid automation. um, Machines that are so clever, so close to human intelligence that a, a, a huge swath of human labor is going to fall away. Various economists think it's up to 50%, some say even more. And so you um, have a world of real material plenty because the machines can produce everything, but these huge distributive problems where a vast swath of the population just doesn't have any money and you have to figure out, you know, give them universal basic income or something like that. Uh, do you think one of these stories is true, and can think, no, can no, no, both of, both them, of be them be true, true at the same time? Because it seems to me that we're really in conflict, and nobody ever talks about the way in which we're in conflict.
0: Well, you, you can you can make them um, work together, and that may be plausible or not. But you know, let's work on it. First of all, um, economists can't predict GDP on a three monthly basis accurately, nor how many jobs will be created, and that's in an economy you know. So anybody is telling me 20 years from now, 50% of all jobs will be X. I just love that stuff. These these projections are utterly pointless. Could you imagine doing a 10-year projection from 1987 to 1997? On just like a straight linear function that all the stuff is based upon, or even an exponential one, things are going to go in this direction, right? What would you have missed? You would have missed the end of the Cold War, you would have missed the collapse of communism, you'd have missed the birth of Europe, right? You see where I'm going with this, right? We simply don't know. Second thing is, I'm absolutely convinced that so much of this stuff is simply a tech industry filled with unicorn investors who have stuck too much money into a bunch of technologies that really are not as transformative as everyone would like to think, or at least they've convinced their investors, and that they're talking their book, that they're keeping the hype up to keep it going. And we've been here many times before, the, the dot-com bubble uh, of 2000 was exactly the same thing. So there's a huge amount of that in there, right? Now let's take your two stories in that context and make them more reasonable. So the first one is productivity is down There isn't actually enough investment. Growth is low. Demography is against us. Yeah, I think that's largely true in one sense. So the obvious thing is we need to increase the rate of investment. That's where we've been before. But why don't we increase the rate of investment? Well, you know, if we do, it'll be in these robots, and they'll suddenly do everything. Oh yeah, really? Okay. Go back to the example of those bits of fruit in the supermarket. Labour is so cheap. Why would do I invest in first-generation robotic technology It's going to cost me an absolute fortune when I can hire graduates to work in Whole Foods for seven bucks? There's no point in doing it, even if it exists. I'm already making more profits now than I've done since the 1960s. So, there's a way in which, you know, again, and this is the inequality story, right? Corporate America is making money hand over fist in an economy that isn't working for most people. That's what populism is picking up on. So, there's not two contradictory stories. It's two sides of the same coin, depending on whether you're living in the C suite or whether you're living on uh, working at Whole Foods. Entirely congruous to have these two things working together.
1: Yeah, that seems convincing to me. Leave us with a thought about how to build a politics around all of those different ideas that you've outlined today. I I, I always find it sort of inspiring to talk to you because even though you're full of um, indignation, full and rage <laughs> about 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 the current state of affairs, I think in a certain way you make it seem quite simple how we get out of it. But but how do you build a political rhetoric around that? I mean, I think a lot of that stuff, you know, as somebody who's not an economist. I find a lot of stuff we've talked about today difficult to follow, difficult to quite get my my hands around. So how do you sell these things to a wider public in a way that they begin to understand what kind of politics we can create around some of those ideas?
0: You know who already figured that out? Who? His name's Donald Trump. Well, but he's not doing any of this stuff, right? No, that's where he's doing it. You asked me how you sell the politics. He walked right into it. We couldn't even see it. We're running around talking about how this full employment, completely forgetting about the fact that 60% of people haven't had a pay rise in 30 years. Because the only people we talk to are other people who went to Ivy League universities. We've become completely disconnected from our base. The only time that we actually talk to the people we ostensibly care about is when they come around to fix something in our houses. The social isolation, the class bubbles, the coasts versus the rest of the country, We we purport to actually understand the lives of these people and in truth, half of us hold them in contempt. So until you overcome that one, you can forget getting any type of progressive politics. Because it's a politics of nudge. It's a politics of you people can't be trusted by your own futures and your own judgment. Let me push you into better behaviors, but God forbid your kids ever come to the same school as mine. I find that reprehensible. And I think unless unless we overcome that, I think there's no point in going even further. So, so how do we fix that? Well, the first thing we do is reflect upon some of the things we have been talking about. That's very, very easy to understand. If the country's never been richer, true, why is it that more people feel screwed, put upon, and let down than ever before? Why is it that all the wealth seems to be in half a dozen places and everybody else isn't doing well? Simply just opening up those topics for conversation rather than pretending that everything's okay, that'd be a really great start. Secondly, admitting that some of the stuff we've done in the past might not have been that great. Basically, let's let Wall Street rip and everybody can take debt up to the wazoo because your income will all, always rise. It's only a plausible economic strategy if your income always rises. But if you then engineer a world in which your jobs can get moved abroad, technology makes you redundant and you're in the wrong place geographically, then all you're going to do is accumulate debt you'll never pay back. So this is why people in the bottom 40% of the income distribution are more indebted than those at the top, because as a proportion of their income, they're much more taxed. They don't have access to proper uh, regular arrangements of credit. They pay you interest rates, et cetera. How about recognizing that and doing something about it, rather than basically doing what we did last time, which is, uh, oh, you want 15 for a minimum wage? Nah, how about 12? <laughs> I don't think that's good enough.
1: I think we know what your opinion of Hillary Clinton's campaign is. Um, how close do you think Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren are to that kind of politics and that kind of language? Do you think they are essentially getting there and it's something to build on there? Or do you think that they actually talk about it in the wrong way as well?
0: I don't think they talk about it in the wrong way, but they're essentially getting it and it resonates. I mean, what, the populist wave that we've seen, and forget the story just now that we've seen the last of it, a few points of inflation and growth in Europe have, have turned off the taps of populism, 12% of French ballot papers were spoiled and one in three French people voted for an avowed fascist, right? So the notion that has gone away anytime soon is just wishful thinking. We need to be incredibly careful because the one thing that they've got going for them is they speak directly to those fears. They speak directly to those people and directly to their lives' experience. Meanwhile, we sell some kind of fantasy version of everybody's doing okay. The one thing I'll say for for Bernie is that he took that head on front and centre and said, "Why is it that your parents went to Berkeley for fifty bucks, and you go to Berkeley and you're out of state and it costs you fifty thousand bucks?" How are you going to take on that debt? Why is that debt guaranteed by the federal government so the private sector can never make a loss? And it's illegal, the only contract to default upon. What is going on with that? There's a manifest injustice. That is not a debt contract. That's indentured labor. Yeah. Guess what? Millions of people are in our position. Actually articulating that in that way is incredibly powerful and resonant. But if we're just basically going to sit around Bethesda, Maryland and the coffee shops in Georgetown and bemoan the fact that nobody listens to experts anymore, we're done. Well,
1: that is about as clear an ending to this conversation as we could hope for. Uh, Mark, thank you so much uh, for for this wonderful conversation.
0: Excellent. I hope that you now edit me into sounding far more reasonable. Um, I think uh, I
1: won't and I'll leave this ending uh, to the conversation.
0: Excellent stuff. Always a pleasure, my friend. Talk to you
1: soon. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying this podcast, please be like them. Rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends all about it. Share it on Facebook or Twitter. Buy one of those glitter boxes that come with a message. Send it to your friend. Get glitter all over them. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to thegoodfight@newamerica.org.
0: Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.